You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Alexandra Nazair. Alexandra is the owner and creative director of Elevated Lux, an event curation and management company focused on celebrating small businesses, brands, and creatives. A New Jersey native and first-generation Haitian-American, Alexandra was raised by two strong women, her mother and her grandmother, following the death of her father when she was just two years old. And while her mother and grandmother may have shown her the value of a strong work ethic, something she's carried through school and into her career, they did not exactly model vulnerability. And it wasn't until Alexandra began the grieving process following the death of her grandmother that she really began to honor her own humanity. Now, like many 26ers, Alexandra is juggling a nine to five job and building a business that she's passionate about. Not only does she believe that there is room for all of us at the top, she's also committed to helping fellow black women get there. So you know what to do. Please enjoy. Alexandra, welcome to the December 26er podcast. How are you? I am wonderful. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. I'm excited to have you. We were just talking, you know, before we hit record here about how the end of the quarter was crazy and also how September just like blew by. Like, I I don't know what happened. Like it was here and then it wasn't. So, you know, we are marching quickly to the end of the year, but very excited to continue to meet new people and welcome them to the December 26th family. I'm so excited to kick off my Q4 (laughs) with you guys. All right, let's do it then. Who is Alexandra Nazaire? Alexandra Nazaire is a sister, a friend, an experiential marketer, uh, a creative talent, a a designer, a all-out resourceful person who is constantly seeking answers. So when someone tells me that they're an all-out resourceful person, <laughs> I, I tend to believe that that comes from somewhere, right? Like it's it's life experience, family dynamic, how you were socialized, something generally drives that. So for you, what do you think fed um, this person that you are to have this temperament around, around being all-out resourceful? Um, so my parents uh, immigrated from Haiti. Um, and when they got here, uh, they essentially built their lives from the ground up. Um, and for me growing up, I had no choice but to be resourceful because it's like, you know, when you have limited funds, limited resources, um, in order to create the life that you want, you literally have no choice but to figure it out, pick up the pieces that you have available or at your disposal, and then make something out of nothing. Uh, so with that, in my bloodstream and, um, you know, seeing my mother hustle the way that she does, seeing my grandmother hustle the way that she did, um, and then just all my entire family, that has always just been my driving force. So it was almost like everything just comes second nature. So when things happen, it's hard for me to sweat it because I know I'm going to figure it out. Like um, I have a conversation with like one of my friends where I'll say, hey, I'm about to tell you an issue that I'm having. And it's not because I want advice, but I know I'm going to figure out, figure it out. I just need to talk it out with you. And, you know, it's funny you've been, you said that because I've been seeing all of these 
sort of IG inspirational posts, you know, guidance that says when someone expresses an issue to you that you should ask a question, are, are you looking for a listener? Or are you looking for someone to help you solve a problem? Which, you know, I think particularly around like December 26th or type personalities, we're going to jump right to let me help you um, as opposed to, oh, you might just be looking for someone to listen and hear you out. But thinking about what you said, because you are such a resourceful person, do you find that you don't really have an ability to lean on other people for advice or help? Um, or does it depend on the situation? Um, interestingly enough, I want to say in the most recent years is when I've learned to uh, learn, lean on other people um, because there are avenues that I simply cannot handle on my own. And getting to that space where I am comfortable and vulnerable enough, because vulnerability is huge. Um, and there are some people that it just comes naturally to. And there are other people like myself where it can be a struggle just because, you know, a lot of times when you had to be resourceful, there's no time to be vulnerable. There's no time to break down. There's no time to feel like, oh my God, I'm in my feelings. Like you get to be in your feelings for two seconds and then you have to pick up and go to the next, um, go to the next, next thing. So uh, now I'm going to say in the past few years, I've gotten the chance to sit down and really reconcile with my feelings and allow myself to experience that human thing. Um, because again, a lot of times I feel like when you've dealt with so much, it's so you almost forget that you're a human being who goes through these things and that's normal to experience these things. And you go into superwoman mode and that's not real. That's not real. So now I've gotten to the space or I'm trying to get to the space in full transparency, trying to get to the space where I can say, hey, I need to lean on you for something. And, you know, I need to I need to talk this through with you. And, and even if I don't need advice at that time, I just need to talk it through and go through the process with you and, and almost allow myself that space to have that human experience. So let's let's unpack this idea of like, always having to just keep going because I think that's standard for black, a lot of black women. It's what was modeled for us. And you, you mentioned it talking about your mother and your grandmother. And I've had this exact conversation, right? When, when someone poses to me, Oh, you've been through a really difficult season, but you're not giving yourself time to rest and heal. You know, what's going on there. And, and the explanation or the epiphany I sort of had before I would just say, well, that's what you do. You just you just have to keep going, right? With, with no time to let the grass grow under your feet. It's on to the next thing. Um, but when I really sat with that and, and someone asked me that question in earnest, I realized that all I knew, particularly from the women in my family, was rising to the occasion. Like no matter what had happened, no matter what level of loss, what level of trauma, you got to get up the next day. You got to go to work. You got to provide for your family go to church, whatever it is that you do, there's no time for rest and healing. That is all I knew. Um, so for me, I think I equated giving yourself grace in that way to a, a level of weakness that I just, that wasn't familiar to me, right? When it's really, to your point, being human, it, it's, you don't have to have the cape on all, all the time. So let's talk a bit about your upbringing. You talked a bit about your parents. You talked a bit about, you know, your grandmother. But what was that dynamic like for you, particularly growing up with immigrant parents, which we know, you know, sort of 
we put this label on immigrant parents of like, they expect the best, they expect perfection, you know, strive for success, financial stability, et cetera. Was that your experience? 100%. (laughs) 100%. So uh, my father passed away when I was two. So I was Mm. raised by a single mom who was also raised by a single mom. Um, So, you know, there was a ton of pressure on me um, in terms of like, you know, succeeding and things. There were certain things that came natural to me just um, in general. So like with school, I was great, except for like, you know, minor things like I talk too much. Um, Or um, I'll never forget, like one of my uh, kindergarten report cards said, like, Alexandra is a great student, but she tends to be a bit bossy. And it was so funny, like labeling a child that in my kindergarten. And it's just like, no, she has leadership skills. That's what it should have said. But yeah, so with that, it was, I, with that upbringing, um, there was like a natural um, inclination or a natural drive to succeed just because I know how much my mother sacrificed in order for me to get to where I was. Um, one of the things that she's most proud of is the fact that like my entire K through 12 education, she bought and put me in private school um, because that was what she considered the best for me in terms of education. And, you know, specifically with immigrant families, they are going to prioritize it. it, So uh, in Creole, we have a phrase that says, l'église, la caille, and l'école, and the the three L's. So it's church, school, and um, home. Those are the three foundations of your life. So after that, you have no time for nothing else. So that was it. It was just like, you know, there was this drive, there was this push to make sure that I got the best education that I could and that I succeeded in that way. And while it created a great foundation for me, um, I want to say like when I became older, there was that emotional component that I had to learn. Um, And I want to say I didn't really get hit with it up until I want to say 2019. It's funny because for a lot of people, 2019 was their last normal year. Um, where for me, that was like the beginning of the chaos for me. My grandmother passed in February, sorry, in March of 2019. So it was like, that was when I had to, and that was my first uh, real experience with grief in terms of like a close, close proximity. Because like I said, my um, father passed away when I was two, so I was relatively young. Um, but that was the closest experience I've had to death. And I think it's so interesting because a lot of times people see death as this like grave ending. But I want to say for me, it was like a beginning. It was a huge catalyst into me learning about this different side of myself that I had never prioritized. Um, after college, I went straight into the workforce. And then uh, two years within the workforce, I started my business. And then I was just ripping and running and ripping and running. And then all of these things that I was doing but I never tended to the emotional side of myself. And it was interesting because once my grandmother passed, I approached that in the same exact way um, to the point where uh, when it came down to her planning her services, I immediately stepped up. And as an event manager and experiential marketer, I was like, well, we're going to create this entire celebration and do this thing um, where I wasn't even her granddaughter in that moment. I was an event planner in that moment. And I hadn't realized that until two weeks after that I never grieved. I never grieved. I, even the whole day, I spent the entire day just orchestrating this beautiful ceremony and this beautiful celebration. Um, but I wasn't myself in it. And it wasn't until after, I want to say 
uh, in May, Mother's Day, that was when I first had like my first kind of like realization of like everything that had been happening. And one thing about grief is that it's it's not linear at all. It ebbs and flows. Some days you're like, okay, I'm okay. And then other days you're just like, well, <laughs> where did this come from? So that I had experienced that first low um, and hit me like a ton of bricks. And because that was a side of myself that I had never tended to, I didn't know what to do with it. I had absolutely no no idea what to do with it. And it's part, and I don't regret it because I needed it, because I needed that shift to happen. I needed that awakening and opening to happen so that I can say to my therapist, I did not grieve. I did not grieve. I did not allow myself to feel. I only allowed myself to use one part of my brain, that logical part of my brain, um, but didn't tap into the emotional side that needed to be tended to. And one thing about emotions is that when you don't tend to them, they will tend to you. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened. Did you find that you were not only grieving this immense loss of your grandmother, but other things that you may not have focused on before? And, and I say that because having had this exact experience, um, I it felt like a tidal wave that was not just about the one thing, but then it opened up Pandora's box about loss in other ways, being deprived of things in in a way that I had thought about, like a present father, where now it's like, okay, this, this specific loss is immense, but the emotions now are getting me for the old and the new. Like, remember those things you never dealt with? Like, here we are. It's all open now. It's all on the table. Did you have that experience? Absolutely. And it was so interesting. And I cannot speak to therapy enough. <laughs> I really cannot speak to there. I will advocate it on every platform <laughs> that I like absolutely because absolutely changed my life. Um because that's exactly what happened. Um I had realized that in in grieving my grandmother who I had spent almost 30 years of my life with, I had never grieved my father who I had lost at the age of two. Um because you know the idea around that was because I had lost my father at the age of two that there was nothing to grieve. But, um, and that's also coming from a cultural standpoint in which, you know, um, a lot of, uh, they don't, most West Indian families don't deal with emotions well or catering to emotions well. So, you know, their whole thought process is that she was too, she doesn't remember anything, but doesn't necessarily apply the context of the loss of the absence of a father. Um, And, you know, that doesn't go away. That's not something that just, you know, we can just ignore and pretend didn't happen. Um, So what ended up happening is through grieving my grandmother, I was grieving this whole experience that I hadn't, I hadn't actually really lived through or never really addressed. And, you know, it's conversations that I never really had um, because of trauma and different experiences regarding that. So I'm here grieving my grandmother and then I'm having a tidal wave, like you said, of other emotions. And I'm just like, where is this even coming from? I didn't even know I felt this way. Um, And it it almost like um, I locked the door. And I think that's why a lot of times we're afraid to unlock that door because we don't know what's coming out. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, you talked about it being 2019 for you, but so many people that I've talked to on the show or off the show I've talked about like being forced to sit down during this pandemic and some, for some reason or another, it's gotten unlocked, right? So it's all this, this stuff that they're dealing with because there's not, we're not all moving at the pace of the speed that we might've been before, right? Things have opened back up in a sense and 
we're working from home, we're doing all these things where we've shifted to virtual and digital in a lot of ways, but it's still not the same speed and pace. Um, so you almost have no choice but to 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 deal with it. And that's why, you know, a lot of my girlfriends and I, we've been having these like sanity checks, like if, if nothing else, just sort of texting like, hey, how you doing? Because we're finding that that people are really circling the drain or feeling like they're teetering in a way that we have really never ever seen before. Um, and, and people who listen to this show often are gonna chuckle at, at your reference of like therapy because we all, we all say, like we talk about this on the show all the time, that is a, a drum we're gonna continue to beat. Like removing the stigma of therapy and talking about its importance. And so many guests have come on the show and like said, you know, that's what saved me. We have very, I think we only have one guest who, who was completely anti-therapy and like said it, and we had a whole conversation about it. Um, but it's it's something that is of utmost importance to us um, and, and, and something that we're really committed to promoting, particularly within the Black community. But for you, did did grief drive you into therapy or were you already in, did you already have a relationship with the therapist when you lost your grandmother? I already had a relationship with a, um, with my therapist. And I think, interestingly enough, um, there were certain parts that she wanted to unlock already um, in regards to, like, my past traumas. She wanted to unlock those that I, my excuses, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. And I would always say that. Like, um, there was this one project that she wanted me to do. She wanted me to do a timeline of, like, my life essentially. And I was just like, I'm not ready. I'm not ready for that project. And then I had no choice. I had no choice but to do it because I had to, I was experiencing it in real time, but I immediately had to unlock the door. And then, and to your point about um, speaking about transparency um, therapy and being transparent about it, it's interesting because I want to say I had, I've been in therapy for going on five years in February. Um, when I first started therapy, I was, I was still very vocal about it because I've always, I've always loved psychology and things like that. And I've always found like the way that people think fascinating. Um, So I talked about how I was in therapy and it was interesting to see the reactions that I got to it because some people felt like, oh my God, you're talking about that. Like, and I'm just like, what do you mean? Like, what's the problem? And it was like, it was almost like this hush, hush tone that you have to approach to being in therapy. And I'm like, if I was telling you that I was going to the doctor, you wouldn't make a big deal about it. You would just say, okay, you're getting a checkup. Please tell me what the difference is. And it was so interesting seeing like these, um, and it's getting better now um, in terms of like, you know, people are being more vocal about being in therapy on social media and stuff. But it's, I still feel like, uh, I don't want to say that it's an echo chamber, but um, there's there's the online life and then there's also real life and I feel like it's still in outside of the online realm there's still some pushback to being vocal and open and honest about being in therapy and seeking help and like the tremendous wonders of it because there is that stigma absolutely so keeping that in mind did you disclose to your family when you first entered there I did I absolutely mm-hmm. did um and it was so interesting how they took it personally <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly why I asked the question. Like, because a lot of Black families are like, why do you think you need therapy? And what did we do to you that you feel like you need to be in therapy? <laughs> and it was like, so, it was, it was hilarious to me because I was just like, what about you? <laughs> um, but yeah, they took it personally. And like, even now, um, 
I can still see my mother squirm a little bit when I mention like, yeah, my therapist said whatever, whatever. Cause it's like, uh, because I'm so casual about it and they're so used to things like, and in general, like even if like medical reasons, they're just so hush hush. I don't, West Indians are just so interesting in terms of what they consider, what they keep private um, because you can tell them a story today and their sisters across the nation will know. <laughs> but in terms of like, in terms of like, you know, things like therapy and stuff, I'll mention it and I like, I'll mention it casually and I can feel like squirming and shifting in terms of like her uncomfortability about it because to them they're saying, why would you tell a stranger your issues? And I'm like, that's exactly what I need to do is tell a stranger because they can be unbiased. Like, you know, and I have such a phenomenal therapist because she is also West Indian. Um, so that cultural context is it really, it's there, um, which makes um, explaining things a lot easier than having to explain it to like a non-Black person or a non-person of color. So, so yeah, it's just, it's so interesting in uh, seeing their reactions to it because they can't help but make it about themselves or just be like oh well you know you can just go to church and you can just pray about it and all those things and I'm just like yeah but you want me to go to therapy (laughs) (laughs) absolutely so you know shifting gears a bit to the educational piece and going to private school right how diverse Mm -hmm. was your private school so it's so funny because I uh, my from first grade to second grade, um, I went to private school in a very predominantly suburban area. And at the time, I was one of six Black students in my class. And then it was predominantly white. Um, and I went there for the two years. Um, and then I switched from third grade to eighth grade to a private school in a more urban area and is predominantly black. Um, so it was a very interesting switch for me to go um, because it was so opposite. Um, and then in high school, I was, uh, which was so interesting because my high school was in the middle of the suburbs, but then predominantly black. Mm. Um, and it was all girls high school, predominantly black in the middle of the suburbs. And so I didn't really experience so much I didn't have to be around like other races until I got to college. Mm. And so it was like, you know, I got a really interesting, I had a really interesting private school experience that I think is very unique um, just because that doesn't happen often. And that experience shaped me in a lot of ways because I was always around my people for a majority of my education. I was always around my people. And a lot of those schools also had a heavy um, West Indian presence too so like I still had that cultural um significance in addition to being around black people so it was interesting when I went to college and then I I did go to, I went to a liberal arts school in New York City so I still had that diverse uh perspective but it was very interesting to kind of see more white people and like interacting with more of them granted like a huge chunk of my teachers were predominantly white but just kind of interacting with them in that way was very different so was it a culture shock, you know, and, and how did you adjust? Um, I'm going to be very honest. It wasn't too much of a culture shock only because I still kept my like close circle of people who were still black. Um, I still opened up to 
more white people, but I won't say that it was. And I think because I had those early years, um, those first two years going to a, a predominantly um, white school, it was interesting because I'd already had, like I heard, I had my first initial um, experiences with white people in that way. And it was, I don't like the fact that I grew up in that, like in my, in that school that I was considered like a unicorn. I didn't, I didn't like thinking back on that now. I don't care for the fact that I was considered a unicorn in terms of, like I said, I was one of like six, um, but I was, I was a great writer. Um, math was never my thing, <laughs> still is it. <laughs> but um, I was a great writer and like even early on then, but it was like almost like that whole golden black child kind of thing that I never really cared for and like even growing like as I got older I'm like yeah that was weird (laughs) and that so people who follow me closely in all these conversations know that I can you know relate to this and it wasn't really honestly I will say it wasn't until I got into therapy that I realized that that is a traumatic experience right to be a child and to be elevated in that way where it's like you're this magical black child who's thriving in a specific environment and they hold you up as as that not realizing that it is racist <laughs> in in many ways Why? that that is something that you know at the time you think okay I'm just trying to figure out how to navigate this experience with a bunch of people who don't look like me I don't care if you're 7 or 17 there, you you know that there's there's something about me that's different than others I'm trying to figure figure that out. And I've told this story on the show before where I think I was in like seventh grade um, and I was at a country day school where I was like one of two or three, um, you know, black kids. And I was in a class, I think it was, I want to say it was like humanities or language arts. I can't even remember. Um, but our, our teacher was sort of getting, we had had an exam. So we had had this test. And our teacher was getting on everybody about, I guess, the average grade that was achieved on the ch- the test. And so he's like reprimanding everybody in the class. I'm thinking like, I'm pretty sure I did, you know, well on this, this test. I don't know what's going on. So he's going on and on. He's like, there's one student in the class who did well on this test. You're going to be shocked to find out who it is. Mm-hmm. And he points to me and I'm already in like the last desk, right? Like in the front row. And he points over to me and everybody looks and he thinks he's proving some point. Right. And I, to use your language at the time, I was like, this is real. This is what I'm thinking. This is making me uncomfortable. This is weird. As an adult, the realization I had in therapy was like the, the undertone of that is you let a black student beat you. Mm -hmm. And that's the last person you would have thought would be number one in this class on this test. But look, lo and behold, she did it because you all don't have your act together. I wish I had the understanding of that at the time to go home and tell my mom. (laughs) Right. But, you know, (laughs) in the moment I was just like, oh, you know, this is this just doesn't feel weird. I don't like being put on display in that way. But at least I did well on the test. I don't want to go home and get some signature because I didn't. But I, I think those experiences follow us. It's not just in academia, it's at work and and everything else that you do. When you are this, you know, this standout minority, it's you're being held up in many different situations and not for our benefit. It's for their benefit. Right. Look, look who we have. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think what ended up and this, this 
didn't happen for anything other than we moved. So it just became easier for me to go to the school in this more, more urban area. Um, and I want to say the culture shock was more the opposite for me because now I wasn't considered the golden black child. I was one of many golden black children. And the transition was a little strange for me because I had already had friends and different things like that. But then when I go to this new school, I had to make that transition. And I'm so happy I did earlier and later because then I probably would have had a complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, I'm, and, you know, sometimes I see some people with this complex where they feel like they're this extraordinarily unicorn special Black person as opposed to like, you know, there's actually a lot of us around here, by the way, I just want to let you know. Right. <laughs> so um, I'm so happy that it happened when it did. And, you know, because I had so many Black te- teachers in that school, I was able to get the affirmations that I needed from my people. And it wasn't a comparative affirmation um, or it wasn't a, um, you know, like you said, like, you know, we're going to affirm you, but really because you, the rest of you are doing what you're supposed to be doing. Um, And then all of that really just inspired how important it is for, um, in terms of education for that cultural nuance to be Mm -hmm. involved um, and for it to be almost a part of the curriculum and a part of how kids are taught um, because it really makes a difference. It truly, truly does because I want to say that upbringing really inspired a lot of the direction of the work that I do um, in terms of who I choose to work with and the type of projects that I I choose to accept because I found specifically with Black women, there is a certain level of support that I've received um, within my career, within my education that has come specifically from Black women, that it wouldn't make sense for me to work in with any other de- demographic and not pour into them the same way that I've been poured into. Mm. So yeah, I had uh, a line in my notes about this, specifically um, after reviewing your capabilities deck and who your ideal client is. And we're definitely going to get there. I won't get ahead of myself, but that's a great segue to talk about sort of what your career aspirations were in college and how you've progressed to this point to focusing on this area. Um, It's so funny because I I knew what I wanted to do. Um, I just didn't know if it was capable for me. But like I said, growing up in a West Indian home, I was either going to become a doctor, a nurse, a lawyer, some kind of accountant. Um, but nothing creative. <laughs> so when I told my mother that I wanted to get my degree in communications and minor in marketing, she was like, what? <laughs> what are you going to do with that? <laughs> so very confused. And I think, honestly, to this day, my mother still doesn't know what I do. That's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so my aspirations were always in, I knew I was a great writer from an early age. I knew I loved Um, organizing my thoughts on paper, Um, I said, okay, I want to do something where I can create content and um, really deep dive into writing and changing how people experience things. So majoring in communications was just like a no-brainer in terms of learning the different ways of communication in terms of media studies, in terms of organizational communications, all of the above. And then applying the science of marketing to it was just an added feature. 
Um, so I can't say that I knew exactly what I wanted to do when I um, got out of college or even when I got into college. I was like, this is just the realm that I want to be in and then we'll figure it out as we go. And it wasn't until I got this internship with this amazing black woman who essentially changed my life and my entire career trajectory um, where uh, I was just her intern um, just helping her. She's an a TV media personality, and I was just helping her manage her, her her calendar, her life, and all of these things, and it was so funny that everything I learned from her wasn't even, it wasn't anything that I paid my degree for, <laughs> mm-hmm. and all of, all of the things that I've learned from her, I use to this day. It's been, I want to say, six or seven years since I've worked with her, and I still use this to, to this day, and I'm now to the people that I work with, I'm now teaching them these things um, because it's been so important to me to create experiences. And that's why when I talk about my business, I don't talk about it from a perspective of just event planning because that's not what I do. And I may be jumping the gun, (laughs) but um, I don't see it as just event planning. I'm creating an experience for my attendees and my guests. That's what I'm doing for you. And I'm trying to cater to all your five senses you are not coming to an event that I curate and not feeling like I'm touching you in some way shape or form so you had this internship did that shift sort of what you wanted from your career absolutely I think it shifted it made me more focused in terms of um how she worked and how she worked with black women and how she was always a champion of women it shifted in in something in me that said, you know, all your life you've been supported by Black women. They have been the pillars into how you've been able to grow and function. So it makes no sense to not target any other demographic and not pour into them in that way. Um, and then seeing her do it in that way, in a more career perspective. So like, for example, I've seen my mother and my grandmother do it towards their families, but never towards their careers. They didn't have the opportunity to choose careers that they were passionate about. They chose careers that brought home money so that they could feed their families and take care of their families. Um, where me, I'm getting the option um, and the opportunity to choose something that I'm passionate about. And then it was through working with her that I was realizing, wow, I'm actually super passionate about it. So we were having conversations, we were creating content and having these different experiences where I was able to provide insight and then also go home and think about like how, wow, this is actually amazing. How can I, how can I grow this part of me? So did you think at that stage, like, I want to run my own business or was it more so I just want to get a job? that is within this niche space? I had, honestly, I'd never really thought about running my own business up until I was in my first job into corporate America. Um, And I was working as an ad sales manager and, or media planner, uh, more lamest term. And I was working that, and it wasn't necessarily all of that creative. It was a lot of numbers, a lot of interacting with sales. And then, at the same time, I had this growing network of um, Black professionals, young Black professionals that I was getting to know um, through different events. And I was going to these events and I was just like, these are amazing, but they could be better. Um, the experience could be better. Like I can see you guys are like almost there, but you're not going to the next level. And so then I said, okay, how would I make this better? 
how would I make this better? And then I'm like, well, what if I created the business and decided to just help out? Because I'd always loved doing events all through college. And I said, well, how could I enhance this experience that I'm having for other people? And how could I come in for these people who have these amazing businesses and brands um, who I see are doing events, but then also being so inundated with the event itself that they're not actually interacting with their customers. They're not actually like interacting with their guests because they're running around trying to make sure there's enough drinks so this is cleaned up and things like that. And I said, okay. But what if I took that on? And what if I, because it was something that just came naturally to me anyway. So I was like, what if I took that on? Um, so that was the first piece. Then the second piece became, I see that there is like this budding community of Black women entrepreneurs. And that's who I want to help specifically. Um, because we only get one shot, really, to launch, to do anything. We don't get as much grace as our counterparts. Um, so I said, how can I help you be the best that you absolutely can be? Because my type A personality is going to list out every nitty gritty thing. So how can I do that for you? So that when you have that one shot, you succeed. Because when you succeed, I succeed. Absolutely. So we we know like there, particularly if you're in a metropolitan area, there's a lot of opportunity, um, but it also can feel like a saturated market in terms of like everybody's trying to eat from the same pool of possible clients, possible opportunities or what have you. So how did you really get it off the ground to differentiate yourself and start to monetize your talents? I think what was helpful for me was that um, Issa Rae had, and I'm sure you've seen it on um, social media a lot, but she made a statement about networking across as opposed to networking Mm -hmm. up. And it was so funny because I didn't realize that's what I was doing, but that's exactly what I did. I networked across and I met people who were within the same industry as me or within the same field as me, but not the same industry. So it was like, oh, you're doing this um, and I'm doing this. And while we we may both be doing event planning or event management, I'm catered to a particular niche and you're catered to a particular niche. So you know what? I can't do this type of event. Here, pass it off. And vice versa. So it was really easy. What made it easier for me was the fact that I wasn't afraid of like competition doesn't really scare me. It doesn't scare me because I know I do what I do. What I do, Mm -hmm. you can can try to do it, but you're not me. You're going to do your version of it. And that's not mine. So I'm okay with that. So I operate from a philosophy that, you know, uh, there's room for everybody to eat. um, And what my plate is always going to feed me and you can't take it from me. You can't mm-hmm. take it from me. So I'm not concerned. I am not concerned whatsoever. So uh, because I've had that philosophy, it's just, I've gotten that natural, it's, it's that natural pull was like easy for me to reach out to people and just say, Hey, I love what you're doing. And I'd love to assist with you or for people to reach out to me and say like, Hey, I love what you did at this event. Can you do this? Can you do this for me? Um, and then take it from there. So were you approaching this like as a partpreneur? So like, I'm going to keep my corporate day gig and do this on the side and try to build, you know, build both trajectories simultaneously. Or did you jump in with both feet? I want to say, I jumped in with both feet for both. <laughs> I want to say okay. I, I dedicated my nine to five 
um, my feet were there. And then from five to nine, my feet were there. Um, and it's interesting because I always hear about, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to work for nobody. I don't want to be my own boss and yada, yada, yada. Um, and I hear that and I think, okay, sure. Do I think it's for everybody? No. Um, I love health insurance. <laughs> I'm just being realistic. We Amen. <laughs> We're in the middle of a pandemic. Health insurance is very important and also very expensive. So there is a stability um, that I appreciate from still having a full-time job and then also working uh, my business. I'm not going to lie and say that it doesn't become exhausting um, because I'm human and, you know, naturally I will get tired. But I will say that there is something about the way that I've been able to work uh, full-time that has fueled my uh, business, um, both from a financial perspective as well as a um, learning perspective. There's so many techniques and things that I've learned from my full-time job that I'm able to apply to my business. And I always look at it from that perspective. I always look at it from like, you know, I just, I, I don't work there just to make them money. And also to for me to make money. I look at my full-time job as an opportunity to, to learn as well. What can I take from what you're doing and apply it to what I'm doing? Absolutely. And I think, that, and I think that's, a lot, that's the piece that a lot of times people are missing when they um, look for corporate shame. Um, that they miss that your job can really work for you should you approach it right. To do a portrait correctly. Um, and that's how I've always taken my, any role that I've had, I've always taken it from the perspective of, I'm going to go in and I'm going to work and I'm going to do what I have to do, but I'm also going to take as much as I possibly can out of this because there's no way you're going to suck nine out of five out of me five days a week for 52 weeks and then me come out if you're with just a paycheck. Right. You know, and I think you have the folks who were like, the, I hate the corporate shamers who are like, no, you know, having a job is being, and I remember at the time when I was a, just a solely a business owner and I had sort of adopted some of that philosophy as well. Like you have a job just over broke, like, you know, there's unlimited, whatever. And then you get into the thick of being an entrepreneur and you realize what is great is great, but when it's not like, it's a whole other thing. Um, and you do have to understand your own temperament and what you have a risk tolerance for. Like I know people who've been in it their entire careers and they're okay with still having a great month and then things are slow for three and they're not, they don't quite know where the next deal is coming from. And then it comes in the 11th hour and they're able to like pay their bills or quote unquote, get caught up. I'm not built for that. Like you, you, <laughs> you, you gotta, you gotta know that. But I think on the other end of the spectrum, my friends who are in professional nine to five jobs, but do have a passion for something else and they want to, want to build outside of their their work, especially now where like the lines are not as clear because people are working from home and a lot of people feel tethered to the work. And it's not like you just mm -hmm. leave it at an office. The issue I think that they have or the concern is the exhaustion piece. Like, well, when am I going to have time to really rest if my job is wearing me out and I'm mentally and physically exhausted? And then now you're telling me like, okay, in the evenings, I've got to be working on this and planning or, or making the use of my uh, my weekends to build this side thing. What has kept you going, even in the midst of the exhaustion? Um, I'm going to say, for one, the fact that I am passionate about my business 
that keeps me going. That keeps me going in the, you know, for about eight months, there was no such thing as events, you know, and mm-hmm. that was like a blow. That was like a mental blow for me because I had an amazing year planned at like, mm. you know, I was, I was just coming off of like, you know, the death of my grandmother and grieving and all of that. And I was just like, all right, January, we have all these things planned for the rest of the year. And then February, I mean, sorry. And then March hits and it's just like, oh, I guess not. <laughs> so, you know, the fact that, and I had to re- do some retooling and refiguring out because I, I had to have that moment where I said, you know, what happens if events don't come back? And mm-hmm. my business model is so focused on the experiences. What's so much experience you can have from a virtual standpoint? So I said, what does elevated luck look like in a pandemic world? And I'm going to be honest, I'm still figuring that out. I'm still figuring that out because I don't, I'm not interested in the culture of like rushing back to normal. That's not realistic. It's not realistic. It's not, it's not real. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I am not particularly interested in that. So while I'm still working that out, what fuels me and what drives me is the fact that, you know, even if I'm tweaking and adjusting the size of what I'm doing or the regulations in terms of the events that I'm doing. What's most important to me is that I am gathering a community of people who I know makes sense to be together um, and giving them that experience, no matter how I have to tweak it to accomplish that. So that's what's like driving me um, to continue, even when my nine to five is driving me crazy with my clients, um, you know, driving me up a wall. And there are also certain uh, rules and limitations that I've had to learn to employ. Um, one of the things that I'm currently learning right now is I don't have to say yes to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it, I know it, it sounds amazing. And a lot of times I think I can do it. And a lot of times I absolutely can. But what am I sacrificing? Or what am I putting up at risk by saying yes to this? Because like I, I would find myself saying, okay, yeah, I can, I can take this on. It's no problem. I can do this in my sleep. And then I do it. And then I'm exhausted and burnt out. And I'm like, did I really gain anything from this? Or did I just need to prove to myself that I can do it mm-hmm. when I knew I could. So um, it's learning to say no to certain things. Like I just have to say no. Um, I have a philosophy that I do not work on my birthday um, at any job. I don't work anything on my birthday. Um, and this month, um, this um, so my birthday is next month in November, and I said this year I will be taking the entire month off um, from both business and then finagling with my full time role to take a pretty much the month off because I need to re- rest and recharge. And I understand that you know I can't be as creative as I want to be if I'm burned out. Right, and you know I that I think is has been a positive byproduct for me of the last year and a half, right? Of that forced slowdown where it was like, <laughs> I had so many things on the horizon. We had all this stuff ready for the show. That was like, this is it. This is the year to really kick this up a notch. And, you know, the world came to a, a grinding halt. But on the other side of that, you know, now I've been asking the questions around, do I want to go back to the pace I was working before? Um, do I want to agree to help all the time because I can or show up because I, I can and and what have you. So it's been really a lesson in balance, uh, a lesson in self-care, which has become for me, non-negotiable, whatever. And, and self-care can look like many different things for, for different people. I know what it looks like for me. 
And it does, honestly, it means that there are things that I a, have to say no to. I don't complete things in as short a time frame as I used to because I was very much a drop everything and just get this done because I've, I've committed to it. Now it's, you know, giving myself the runway to say it's going to take longer because I cannot attack this in the way that I used to. I don't have energy for that. I need time to do other things. I need to find balance. I need to go to bed on time um, so that I am fully present the next day. And I have become, for the most part, not always, I've become okay with that pace and, and letting people know that, okay, I've agreed to this, but setting the expectation up front that you're also going to have to wait, right? It, you got to understand that it's not, I'm not the person that you may remember from three years ago who would stay up all night to help you or, you know, to do it in what in the time frame that you would like it done. So it's, this this past year and a half has been an adjustment, but I think some of the tools that people who have similar temperaments as us, us, the tools that we have picked up will serve us when we do find some semblance of normalcy again. Absolutely. Um, I remember having a conversation with someone and I said that during the pandemic um, was the first time I spent the most time in my apartment. Mm -hmm. And, and that was insane to me. I've been in that apartment for six years and I did not realize that and it's funny because so many people had been doing so many renovations during the pandemic to their homes, and I understand why because it was the first time they were home so they started right. realizing all of the things that they didn't like and that's exactly what happened to me I was in my apartment and I was like I don't like this I don't like this I don't like this and I had done such a recall in things because I was never home it was especially with working my nine-to-five I was working my nine-to-five and I had events in the city and then I had events on the weekend, and then I was trying to have a social life. So all I did was sleep there. I would sleep there, and then maybe on occasion I'd have a lazy Saturday, um, and then like stay in bed, or I was traveling. Um, but I had never stayed in my apartment, and it was amazing to me to see like, oh my god, I had never been here, and now I'm like, I don't have enough space. <laughs> I didn't even realize that I didn't have enough space. So it's so interesting to me now, um, consider like defining what my life looks like um, going forward, because I, I do love being home. I used to think that I wasn't a homebody, but I do love being in my space. I love having the chance to recharge and having that moment where um, I can just center myself and just focus on how I'm feeling and really just check in. Like, and I think that's what the pandemic uh, really taught me is to just check in with myself because I didn't realize that because you, I was so used to just being on go, 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 that I would get sick and I wouldn't know where it came from. Now, when I get sick, I know exactly what it is. It was like, oh, you didn't sleep properly for the past couple of days or you weren't eating. I know exactly what caused it. Whereas when I was on go mode so, more, so much, I was like, did this person get me sick? I, I didn't know where it even came from. For sure. For sure. And, and you know, I... We always hear like the phrase like health is wealth, but I don't know about you, but like the gravity of being run down. I think for me, that was just like normal state before, right? Where like, it's like, that's just the way you function. You drag yourself <laughs> out of bed, you go to work, you do what you have to do. You drag yourself to this event after where now it's very visceral, like a day of that. And I'm like, oh no, like <laughs> we've got to find a way to sort of rebalance here. Cause I can't do this. And I know that that was just the current state of affairs at all times, running purely on adrenaline and obligation before this pandemic. Absolutely. I used to 
say how I used to say as like a badge of honor how I only needed about five hours of sleep. And then I realized that's not normal. <laughs> that's not normal. It's right. Not and it's not okay. It's not. And, you know, so, and I, and I think too, for me, I do recognize like, okay, you're not 25 anymore. Like <laughs> if you want this body to serve you for another 40 or 50 years, because I do plan to live a long time. Like you are shaving years off your life by doing this. Like that, that was very sobering to me too. Like to take the time to realize that like you're depriving your body of what it needs to be strong for you for, for decades to come. So yeah, I'm, I'm like, nah, I do not negotiate on the, the, the right amount of sleep now. I just, I just do not. And if that, that means that some people are going to have to hear no, then even myself, sometimes things that I would like to do, but it's just like, okay, or do you want to sleep or do you want to do X, Y, and Z? Um, it's, it's become a non-negotiable but the one other thing I want to ask about building your business um, is a lot of times when people start something like this, this kind of endeavor, they feel the need to have to maybe compromise on the value that they bring from a monetary perspective to, to kind of get their portfolio going. So in the beginning or at any point, did you feel like you had to lower your fees or do things for free just to kind of build out um, that reputation? And get yourself going in the industry? Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. And the thing is, though, because, and from a general, and I know a lot of people don't have this perspective, especially as business owners, um, I, money doesn't drive my business. Mm -hmm. Money doesn't drive my business, and money does not drive me don't get me wrong I like nice things <laughs> I like nice things I like nice experiences but I think because my work has not been driven based off of my invoices or you know how much I can get from certain clients um that that's why I've been in an abundant place and I think that's why I've been able to be so successful it's just because I am not moved by it. And, and I say that in terms of like, I won't accept every event, you know, and even from the beginning, I wouldn't accept every event because I knew it was going to either A, compromise my morals, B, not make sense with my brand, or C, just be something that I'm not interested in and I would be doing it simply just to get a check. So for me, because if it was a small business owner that, and I was really passionate about their business and what they were trying to do, it would be nothing for me to do it from a lower rate. And I think, and the privilege of that might have been because I have a full-time job mm -hmm. um, and I can, I can accept that, but that's also why I've kept my full-time job so that I can be able to do those kind of things. Because for me, what's more important to me is that I can assist a small business owner who wants to create her candle line um, and, you know, that Black-owned candle business that really allows homeowners to create an experience with their homes and she's so passionate about it. I'd much rather do her event than someone that just wants to throw a party just to throw a party. Absolutely. And just to to circle back on the, the point about your ideal client and your passion for helping other Black women, investing in other Black women, do you have those who don't fall within that your core demographic request your services and how do you handle that? I have them. Um, and I think it depends on the role, um, the role that they want me to play. So I have like, uh, because my full-time job is working in pharma, I've had other pharma clients reach out to me about 
doing, uh, you know, managing some of their virtual events or doing things like that. So it's a little bit out of my target demographics, but it pays the bill so that I am able to accept these smaller budget clients. So yes, so I do find that I do accept those um, for the sake of running the business. But at the same time, like I said, I really try to be ultra specific in terms of how much effort it's going to take out of me as a business owner. Um, I, like I said, I try to make sure that my energy is reserved for my niche client because I feel as though that's the demographic that is typically underserved um, unless it's by us. So that's most important to me. And do you think that, you know, there's been a lot of focus with respect to elevating Black brands, Black small businesses that really started, you know, early in the pandemic, George Floyd protests, companies started being like, what what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Right. (laughs) It it was born out of, I think, a lot of panic and judgment, quite frankly. But um, then it became, how do we elevate Black voices? Everybody was doing it from Amazon to Etsy to, you know, Netflix. Do you think that there has been a shift that's here to stay in terms of you mentioned, you know, black brands only getting one shot, which I wholeheartedly agree with. Do you think that it's easier for us to get traction um, and that this shift is here to stay at this point? Do I think that it's easier? No, I don't think it's mm-hmm. easier because of the fact that we only get one shot to be and we have to be perfect. And I find that like even with ourselves, sometimes we don't even give ourselves another shot mm-hmm. uh, or like even grace to keep it to keep it going um so no I don't think it's easier and then also I feel like sometimes we have this like limiting and I, I'll even admit it for myself where I felt I've felt like oh my god everybody's doing this now so I don't want to do it or oh my god everybody's doing this now they're going to look at them and see them and you know they have things that I don't have so um I think there is almost like a mental block that also makes it harder um so no, I don't think it's easier. Easier. Do I think it's here to stay? I think as long as we continue to put the pressure on these brands, I think that's mm-hmm. what it's going to re- rely on. I think it's going to rely on us, which is annoying, um, if I'm being honest, because it's just like, why do we always have to do this? Always have to work and struggle. And, you know, for me, uh, so I turned 30 in November. One of the things is I'm looking to manifest a life of ease going forward. Um mm-hmm. I am looking for, you know, while I am proud of the work that I've done, and I'm sure many Black women can relate to this, I'm proud of the work that I've done, and I'm proud of my ability to be so strong, but a lot of times, I don't want to be. I don't want to be, and then I want us to all have the opportunity to not feel like we have to be so strong, and not feel like we have to work so hard and work ourselves to the bone to get what we want, so I think in order for this to continue, we are going to have to apply pressure and not let up. Um, And then just also within what we do for ourselves is just to keep going, to keep doing what you do. Don't feel discouraged and don't feel like, you know, um, like I said, our philosophy at Elevated Lux is room at the table for everybody um, Mm -hmm. because there's no stopping you. There's literally no stopping you. And anything that you feel like might get in your way, reach out to your neighbor and say, hey, can you help me? Mm-hmm. And let's go. Let's take it from there. Absolutely. So before we let you get out of here, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. <sighs> extraordinary on an ordinary day. Extraordinary on an ordinary day. 
I would say what always comes to mind um, is my grandmother's funeral. We, and I don't even like calling it a funeral, more of a celebration of life. So that's really what it was. And it's funny because as an event manager, you can see all of the things that are going wrong that no one's paying attention to. And unfortunately, because of that, the small things are magnified. And then because this is my grandmother, they're even like 10 times bigger. Um, and so, and I guess this is an, an ordinary day, but for everyone else, it's probably an ordinary day. And somehow in the midst of all the things that were going wrong that I saw that no one else paid attention to, and we're like, this was fabulous. Um, I managed to still get up there and read um, my grandmother's biography in a way that was both entertaining because that's how we wrote it we wrote it to be entertaining and funny and make people laugh because that's what she was she was an amazing hilarious dynamic woman and so I somehow mustered up the courage and strength behind everything that was going on in my brain about all the little things that were going wrong and felt like I had served her in sharing the details of her life in the way that she would want to be remembered, not in anything that had, had transpired in the six weeks before she passed, but as this amazing dynamic woman. And I felt like after that, nothing else matters. Nothing else mattered because at the end of the day, I get to I got to share who this woman who this woman was. And that was most more important than the music not playing on time and all of this, all of all of the other foolish things that happened that day. Um, and that gave me a sense of peace. It gave me a, a true sense of peace because I knew that, you know, all the bells and whistles and things that I did, that I know she would have loved it, but that didn't matter. Like me being able to stand up there on her behalf and speak was more than extraordinary. And that is a great place to end on. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the ability to honor our ancestors, because at the end of the day, we stand on their shoulders and, you know, it's, it's interesting in that we live in a time where we all have some sort of digital footprint and we're promoting ourselves and we're promoting our brands and the people for the most part, for the majority of us, the people who have influenced us the most and invested so much in us to become the people that we've become today lived in anonymity, right? They, they worked hard. They did what they had to do to, to your earlier point without the ability to follow passions. And I often think about like, who could my grandmother have been if she didn't have to just work her fingers to the bone to make sure that her family had what they needed, understanding the charisma, all the talent, all of this, the, you know, the things that she was interested in. So see, I understand the gravity and the importance of being able to speak their names uh, and give humanity to them and allow somebody or an audience to really see, have a 360 degree view of who they were, even if they're not here anymore. I think that's the ultimate honor for people who oftentimes didn't have a public platform in that way. Absolutely. And uh, what you said just gave me chills because I think about that too. I think about even like with my mother, um, like who would you be? And that's why I think it's so important for me myself and then also just sharing that with other women 
um, to just go out there and do it. Go out there and do it because our ancestors and our parents, you know, they didn't have the choice. They didn't have what we have now. They didn't have that. So because we do, it, I feel like it would almost be a disservice to them to not go after it, to not go after what drives you and what fuels you and what you're so passionate about because a lot of times they almost feel stuck. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it's a life they've never known because they didn't think that they had the opportunity to do that. We what we do like it wasn't even imaginable for them. So now they feel like, well, this is how I've been living, and I don't I don't know what to do from here. Um, so it's like because you're present and in this moment, and you have the world is literally your oyster. It's so important to me to tell young black women tell women in general to just go after it go do it it scares you I know it scares me just do it just do it and and even if it's like a small thing if we start off with you just writing or whatever you just creating that Instagram page where you get like your likes are all coming from your friends it doesn't matter like it literally does not matter at the end of the day as long as you're doing that thing that makes you happy that's it absolutely so before we let you go, where can people find you online? You can find me at Elevated Lux um, on Instagram, and you can find me at www.elevatedlux.com. You can also find me on my personal page, underscore at Alex Sand, A-L-E-X-S-A-N-D on Instagram. Um, I'm usually skewing my nonsense uh, because in full transparency, we are dynamic people um, <laughs> and we are just not, you know, we're not a monolith. And I, this is another thing I'm a huge proponent about, you know, where sometimes feel, people feel like they have to cater to this online personality uh, where they have to be a certain way or present a certain way. No, I'm human. <laughs> I am a human being with human thoughts and emotions. get frustrated with my order is incorrect at um, Target drive-up, <laughs> and you know, who laments about that, but then also loves encouraging Black women to go after their dreams and to support each other. Awesome. So to our listeners, you know what to do. I say it every single week. Go out there, like, share, subscribe, comment. If you've joined, if you enjoyed this episode, tell someone about it. Please go follow Elevated Lux and Alexandra's personal page as well. We are all about a sense of community and building our December 26th family, both online and in real life. And we are also all about networking. So if you have a need for her services or she's just someone that you want to connect with, please feel free to reach out to her um, and introduce yourself. And don't ask for the homegirl hookup either. Even though she did say that <laughs> she works with those she's passionate about. Listen, ask for those fees, what those rates are. We, we want to pay people what they're worth too around here. So uh, make sure you do that. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.